The information provided on this podcast is not legal advice and is intended for the sole purpose of providing education and legal information. Laws change over time, and the information provided on this podcast may not be up to date. We make no warranty, express or implied, regarding the information provided by our team or our guests on this podcast. The information should not be construed as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with us or any of our guests on the podcast. If you would like to consult with an attorney, please call 1-800-VICTIMS. That's 1-800-842-8467 for attorney referral contact information. This podcast provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and information to help educate crime victims on their rights. Some content will include topics and materials that may involve descriptions of violence or assaults, which can be distressing to victims and survivors. It may also impact service providers experiencing vicarious trauma. Podcasting from the Victims of Crime Resource Center, this is Knowledge is Power, Victim to Survivor, a podcast series where we help crime victims understand their rights so they can go from victims to survivors. On this episode, we'll discuss sexual harassment. Welcome in, everyone. It's me once again, your humble host, Nima Malavi with the Victim of Crime Resource Center. And it's my pleasure today to introduce Elizabeth Kristen into the podcast. Elizabeth is the Senior Staff Attorney and Director of the Gender Equity and LGBT Rights Program at Legal Aid at Work, formerly the Legal Aid Society Employment Law Center. Elizabeth, how is your morning going today? Good morning. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. I wanted to start our discussion today by asking about what type of work Legal Aid at Work does. Legal Aid at Work has been around for more than 100 years. We're actually the oldest legal aid organization in the West. We recently changed our name about a couple years ago to Legal Aid at Work. But before that, we were the Legal Aid Society Employment Law Center. And our mission has changed over the years. But since the 1970s, we've been focused on assisting low-wage workers with access to their employment rights. And that really has a broad scope. We help people with problems they might have at work, getting paid um, with discrimination on the basis of sex or race or national origin or disability. And we also help people with leaves of absence that they might need at work, um, pregnancy discrimination, basically the whole range of legal services. Where do you provide services? We provide services throughout California, and we have particularly low-wage worker, workers' rights clinics centered throughout California. And that's actually an expanding service that we have. And we have one here in Sacramento, and I can provide you with the details about how to reach that Sacramento clinic. But our website, legalaidatwork.org, lists the clinic schedules for all of our in-person low-wage worker clinics. The other services that we provide are in the nature of helplines. And there's a helpline for a number of our different projects. And the one I wanted to focus on today is Project Survive. Project Survive is a project that helps survivors of violence, such as domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, sexual harassment, with information about their workplace rights. Now, when we think about these survivors of crime, we often think about their immediate needs for uh, medical attention or perhaps their need to cooperate with the police if they so choose or their housing issues or maybe even their needs for counseling. But sometimes we forget that a lot of these survivors are employed and they may need modifications at work in order to be able to keep doing their job. And particularly for survivors of domestic violence, the ability to have economic stability and economic security might actually be a key point in their ability to leave an abusive partner. 
And how can survivors contact your organization, Survive? The Project Survive Helpline is 888-864-8355. When they call, they'll hear a greeting in English, in Spanish, and in Chinese. We have staff ability to provide counseling in those languages, and we certainly are able to access online interpreting services and volunteer interpreters if people need services in another language. And so the general process is for a survivor to call that 800 number to leave a message, and we'll get back to them. And when they leave a message, it's helpful if they just let us know if it's safe for us when we're calling them back to leave a message with the details of who we are and how to reach us. Um, If someone wants to call our main desk front number, that's fine too. We have a receptionist who answers the phone. I know that's not always the case anymore. Um, She's a wonderful person, very empathetic. And her phone number to reach the main desk is 415-864-8848. And if someone wants to ask for me directly, they can certainly do that. No, it's certainly nice when you have a live person answering the phone. Uh, I'd like to ask, what is your role with Legal Aid at Work? I've been at Legal Aid at Work since 2002. I went to Berkeley Law School and graduated in 2001. And I started at Legal Aid at Work as a fellow in 2002. And I started actually in our disability rights program and became involved in our gender equity program because of the overlaps between disability laws and leaves of absence. And all of those will be applicable, I think, to certain crime victims as well. And I became the head of our gender equity and LGBT rights program in about 2009. Our program provides a wide variety of services um, with the general mission of ending sex discrimination in employment and also in certain educational settings. And I'm a practicing lawyer. I litigate cases in state and federal court. I also provide community education and policy work and working on legislation, working to try to advance survivors' rights um, and also the rights of people to be free from sex discrimination. Um, And we support other efforts through amicus briefs and the like, um, kind of the whole range of legal services that are out there. It's a pretty interesting organization to be a part of because I know when I was in law school, I was told I was going to have to choose between doing impact litigation or providing direct services. And our organization has found a way to combine those. And I feel like we've really strengthened our ability to respond to the needs of individual workers because of that. Um, and I have a particular example in mind that relates to our topic today when when the, when the time is right. Okay. Uh, I would like to talk about, as an attorney, how, how do we properly define sexual harassment? Sexual harassment is a term that has been evolving over time. And as some of you may know, back in 1964, when the Civil Rights Act was passed and on the federal level prohibited discrimination on the basis of sex, it didn't mention anything about sexual harassment. And actually, some of the earliest cases found that sexual harassment wasn't 
even covered by that prohibition on sex discrimination. And so through the work of legal scholars such as Professor Catherine McKinnon, the courts began to recognize that sexual harassment could be a form of sex discrimination. But over time, the Supreme Court has developed some very complicated standards for how to establish that you have been the victim of sexual harassment at work. The most key bottom line point is that there is some kind of unwelcome conduct that's based on sex, and that is what the courts call severe or pervasive. Um, And then there's a number of different other parts of the definition as to who can be held liable for that conduct. Uh, One of the challenges with respect to harassment is this idea of severe or pervasive being interpreted fairly narrowly by the courts. And so we often in the past would say that there was this bad case here in the Ninth Circuit where a woman was groped by her supervisor. And the Ninth Circuit basically said that wasn't enough for sexual harassment because the employer took immediate action. Um, And so I think advocates and, and people who think about these issues felt that case had to be wrong. And the California legislature passed and Governor Brown signed last year a bill called SB 1300 that was authored by Hannah Beth Jackson. That bill has really tried to clean up and tighten the language here in California prohibiting sexual harassment, making clear, for example, that one instance of unwelcome conduct can constitute sexual harassment. And it specifically disavows that bad Ninth Circuit case. And so I think with the with the onset of the Me Too movement and Time's Up, for example, we have a lot more momentum towards making the legal standards clearer here in the legislature, but also making sure that courts become educated, that women and other people covered by this law should not have to endure just repeated and ongoing and constant terrible conduct before they have any recourse to the law. So the standard is unwelcome conduct based on sex that is severe and pervasive. Is there Are there particular settings in an employment context that you see this occur most often? Yes, absolutely. And I want to just make one clarification that the standard is severe or pervasive, Ah. and it ends up becoming legally important. A lot of courts even um, say and pervasive, but one incident of severe conduct can be enough to form a sexual harassment claim. And so I can tell you some of the stories that my clients have endured over the, you know, 15, 20 years that I've been at Legal Aid. One of the clients that I'm thinking of was raped at work and she was working in a restaurant in San Francisco. She had a supervisor who paid her a lot of unwelcome attention. He would ask her out. He would offer to drive her home. Sometimes she would accept those rides because she lived quite a long way from the restaurant and she would get off late at night as waitresses often do. And one night he raped her at the restaurant. And this was a case where she was raped at work and she didn't know what to do. She didn't know where to turn. She finally spoke to one of her supervisors who was relatives of the owner of the restaurant and explained what happened. But the owner of the restaurant was engaged in a relationship with this man who had raped our client. And so instead of taking this allegation seriously and taking any action to help our client, 
The owner of the restaurant fired our client, went after her housing, talked to her landlord, got her kicked out of her housing, and our client ended up homeless. We worked with this client for more than 10 years. We finally were able to bring her case to court last year. We resolved the case with a monetary settlement for her. Now, that's one of the difficult parts of these cases is that, especially in the civil context, the legal remedy is really often monetary. And while certainly survivors are entitled to, and in many cases, it makes a meaningful difference to them to receive monetary compensation, there sometimes are other forms of relief that survivors wish they would have access to, um, such as making sure that person loses their job if they've sexually harassed or sexually assaulted them. We're sometimes able to reach those types of resolutions in settlement agreements, but it's often difficult to get that kind of of relief in the courts. I see. Then, what, what what a terrible situation. It, let me ask now. You did mention that the civil process is so. Is sexual harassment something that is prosecuted in criminal court, or do you find that this is also something that's addressed in 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 the civil process frequently? There's sometimes overlap between the civil and the criminal process for victims of sexual harassment. And for my client that I was just speaking about, she also had gone to the police and there was a criminal investigation. But as I'm sure many of your listeners know, a lot of times the police do not adequately prosecute sexual assault crimes. And so sometimes having access to these civil remedies is really important for victims of crime. That is the unfortunate reality sometimes. Besides the horrific example that you provided, could you possibly give some of our listeners some other examples of of what maybe sexual harassment at work could look like? Yes. The example I gave is uh, perhaps the most egregious example of what is severe harassment, um, one incident of sexual assault. But it doesn't have to only be such a severe example to be considered sexual harassment. And the other form of harassment that we often see is something called hostile work environment harassment. And I think the name of it gives people a sense of what it's like. It means being exposed to something like gender-based hostility, which happens in some kinds of workplaces. So I think people can relate to the story that was told in the movie North Country, where women wanted to enter a trade that was very high paying, which was mining, but men were resentful and really went after them as women and expressed hostility towards them as women. That's one form of hostile work environment harassment. But another form is the kind of general hostility that women often experience at work that involves things like touching, you know, for example, a male colleague engaging in unwanted touching of a female colleague, asking her out on dates in an unwelcome and persistent manner, um, sending her pornographic images, um, engaging in sending offensive jokes over email or in person. There's a huge range of types of conduct that can constitute unwelcome sexual harassment. And certain kinds of workplaces seem to have certain types of harassment that's more prevalent. And if a, if a survivor of uh, sexual harassment at work has any questions about their specific 
situation, are, are they welcome to call your organization? Yes, we have a lot of materials on our website and certainly survivors can look at our website, legalaidatwork.org. They're also welcome to call the Survive Helpline number that I mentioned or to just call our main number. And we're happy to talk through with survivors or people who aren't sure if they're conduct that they're being exposed to, um, if they're not sure that conduct rises to the level of something that's illegal, they're more than welcome to contact our organization. And if they're not ready to take action yet, which is often true, um, we often say that survivors are in the best position to know what is the right next step for them. We are there to provide support, to provide information. But if someone feels they need to stay the course continue at a job where they're enduring this kind of terrible conduct because they need to feed their family, because they're an undocumented immigrant, or because of some other reason that we don't know about, we're there to provide support and information regardless. Knowledge can certainly be power in that uh, situation. I do want to touch on what you mentioned earlier in in your example with respect to uh, the penalties for not only the perpetrator, but for the employer as a whole. Could you could you touch on that briefly, maybe in some certain examples that you've seen or, or what's typical? Yes, absolutely. And it's really important in the sexual harassment context to understand the role of the person who's harassing the victim, because that really dictates the liability standard for the employer. And so for an employer where there's a manager involved, the employer is basically subject to liability as a company, even if they didn't know about what the manager was doing. Um, And there's some defenses that employers have to that. But the manager standard is effectively the highest standard of liability for employers. If the person harassing you is a coworker or a third party, say a customer, you know, in a retail environment or a vendor, then the employer is liable if they knew or they should have known about the harassment. I had a client who worked in a retail environment and she was routinely being harassed by customers. That was a highly surveilled environment because it was retail. And so they had loss prevention, always looking at cameras, always around. And so we argued that certainly the employer knew not only did she complain and so she directly put them on notice, but they also knew because they had all of these loss prevention employees who were surveilling the premises and could know that she was being harassed by customers. In your experience, I would like to introduce a new a new topic to our conversation. And in your experience, is there a link between stalking and, and sexual harassment? There can be a link between stalking and sexual harassment. Now, certainly stalking itself can constitute sexual harassment. The other thing that we see sometimes is that a person stalking an individual outside the workplace will use parts of the workplace apparatus to continue the stalking. Um, in a recent example, we heard from two women who were delivery drivers and they were using some tracking applications to track their movements because that was part of the business model. But one particular dispatcher was also using that tracking to stalk our clients and to make sure that they knew that he knew where they were and to then kind of engage in additional harassing conduct. So there can be a connection. 
Can you give our listeners some examples of, of stalking in the workplace outside of the one you just provided? Another type of stalking that we often hear about is, for example, an outside person um, calling repeatedly to try to find the caller um, and to use their workplace mailbox or their workplace extension to make sure that they are kind of constantly reminded that this person is contacting them. And these can also connect to the domestic violence topic that I know we're going to cover as well. Um, But another kind of stalking and domestic violence behavior that we've seen is for a partner of a worker to engage in efforts to get their partner fired by, for example, calling a HR and accusing the victim of some kind of crime and then having the victim be subjected to some kind of workplace policies or investigation that ends up having them lose their job. As far as uh, technology and social media platforms, that, that's obviously been a, a topic of um, conversation in, in the past 10 or 15 years with the advent of different social media platforms. Can, can you touch on um how social media platforms and and technology in general have increased the rate of sexual harassment or stalking in the workplace? I think that the onset of social media platforms has really just created more avenues for people who are perpetrators of sexual harassment and stalking to reach their victims. And so in addition to things that people typically think about like Facebook um, or other Instagram types of social media, they'll sometimes be the use of some sort of internal messaging software like WhatsApp, things like that, where Maybe the person who's harassing the victim has their information for some legitimate purpose originally. You know, so for example, I have a client who they use the WhatsApp program to send out the work schedules to everybody, but that allows their supervisor to then have access to their phone number and be able to send them sexually explicit messages, you know, ask them out on dates or have information about them and their location that allows them to engage in stalking behavior. If a survivor finds himself in that position, would you recommend that they save the information and then contact the police? Or are there some best practices uh, in that kind of situation? That's a great question. It's really important for survivors to document the bad conduct that they're experiencing. And I know that's not always a natural first reaction. I think when you receive something or you're the victim of something that you find offensive or disturbing or troubling, your first reaction action maybe to delete it um, or to try and put it out of your mind. And I think that's a completely natural reaction. But from a lawyer's perspective and from a perspective of trying to prove the case, it's really important to maintain copies of anything that you receive that you think is offensive. And so if you receive an offensive text message, try to save a screenshot and save it somewhere more permanently than on your phone. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and said, I had these text messages, but I lost my phone or I had them on my old phone. I don't know where it is anymore. I can't access them. So it's really
really important to preserve that kind of material in the context of the retail worker I was describing earlier. She had a manager who was regularly giving her pornographic magazines. She saved those magazines as well as cards that her manager gave her that were inappropriate. I'm sure she didn't want to save them, but she had them handy. And it was really important in terms of proving the case later. I just want to add a couple of cautionary notes. And so the first cautionary note has to do with audio recording of conversations. So a lot of times workers in California want to audio record an interaction because they think or they know that something offensive is going to happen. California is a two-party consent state for audio recording. That means that both sides have to agree to be audio recorded. And so therefore, it's very risky for somebody to audio record a conversation where they don't have the other side's permission. Again, I think it's something that's natural that people do naturally, but it can cause problems. I had a client that had audio recorded a conversation in which her employer made a threat against her of immigration related retaliation. It was an egregious threat and she had it audio recorded and she was able to then pursue that threat through the labor commissioner. The problem was, is that when she resolved that case, she didn't resolve the case that her employer might have against her for unlawful recording. And so her employer turned around and sued her in court for having made a recording unlawfully. We defended her and we were able to reach a resolution in that case, but it's a cautionary tale for workers who are trying to create an audio record of evidence. The other cautionary tale is to make sure that you preserve the evidence somewhere not at your workplace. And so sometimes people tell me that they have a lot of emails in their work email account. They then make a complaint or they lose their job for some other reason. They no longer have access to their email account. And sometimes the employer will intentionally or inadvertently delete their email account and that evidence can be lost. So I always recommend keeping a copy somewhere, not in your work email account. And one final note, maybe you're being subjected to something that you can't take a picture of or make an audio recording of, still keep notes of that interaction. Note where it was, what happened, Were there any witnesses? Does the employer have any video or audio equipment in that particular location? That can be really important evidence later. I do have a question with respect to the two-party consent standard here in California. You mentioned that it applies to audio recordings. Does it also apply to maybe a video interaction if two people were going to be uh, engaged in like a, a Skype type conversation and a survivor were to record that. Is that something that would also apply to the two-party standard? As far as I know, that would also be included unless there's some way in which the survivor can argue that there was consent or implied consent to the recording. It's not always a cut and dry situation as so many things in the law, you know, have a lot of nuance. So there often are arguments where you can say there was no reasonable expectation of privacy in that communication, but it is really careful to not run a foul of these really strong privacy protections with respect to audio and video recordings. Interesting. If one of our listeners suspects that either they or a friend have been uh, a victim of sexual harassment or stalking, what steps would you recommend they take? 
Well, first, I would want to say that they should know that they're not alone. I think that's really difficult for victims of these crimes. I think that's very isolating. And people sometimes blame themselves and say, there's something that I did that led to this crime, that led to this conduct. Um, know that you're not alone. Know that it wasn't anything that you did. It's not your fault. And know that you have options. And I think reaching out to talk to someone either at our office or a trusted friend or family member is really important in figuring out what the path is because you do not have to go forward with a legal case. Not all legal cases end up in court. There's a huge range of options that people have. And I think it's important to talk through that full range of options before making a decision. You mentioned one thing I wanted to touch on. Uh, you mentioned earlier with respect to a person's immigration status, how does one's immigration status affect their ability to report either sexual harassment or, or stalking? Well, technically, everybody has the right to report these crimes. Everyone has the right to be protected against this type of unlawful conduct in either the criminal or the civil context. And so immigration status should have no bearing whatsoever on someone's right to report these crimes. However, as a practical matter, I know that undocumented immigrants are very concerned about reporting crimes and about pursuing civil cases against their employers. And I want to make a couple of different points about that. The first point is that there may be certain forms of immigration relief available to victims of crime. If you've been a victim of crime, it's very important to get an immigration consultation to see if you as a victim of crime might qualify for certain forms of immigration relief. One of them is called a U visa. It's a visa for victims of crime. And some of the crimes we've been talking about today, like sexual assault, can lead someone to have the status to get a U visa because of being a victim of that crime. And some of the agencies that we'll talk about later that are the federal and state agencies that enforce the civil the civil penalties for some of these crimes and some of these unlawful conduct aspects, these agencies can be certifying agencies for U visas, like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. And I know we'll talk more about those later. Outside of the context of um, the U visa for sexual assault, you mentioned that there might be other crimes that that possibly would qualify. Are, are you familiar with maybe some of the other crimes so our listeners are aware of those? Some of the other crimes that may qualify may be things like stalking, domestic violence, tra human trafficking. There's a number of different types of crimes, sometimes even wage theft, forms of wage theft. And so there's a list of different qualifying crimes. And so that's why it's important to talk to an immigration professional about what crimes might be the type that could qualify for a U visa. I wanted to make another point for undocumented immigrants, and that is that our office provides services to victims regardless of immigration status. And I want to make sure that undocumented workers feel comfortable coming to our office, using our workers' rights clinics, making themselves um, available to our services regardless of immigration status. And we will talk through with people who are undocumented, what are the possible risks to them of coming forward to pursue their civil rights? 
We want to make sure that they have the opportunity to make an informed decision. But we want to make sure that this whole group of workers isn't subjected to just additional outrageous exploitation because of their immigration status. Can you maybe speak about in your experience how common it is for a person's immigration status to maybe be used as a tool of coercion, specifically in the context of sexual harassment survivors in the workplace? Unfortunately, we do see that happen sometimes. We see sometimes that undocumented workers who have a job are told that if they complain about sexual harassment or wage theft or some other kinds of unlawful conduct, that the employer will take action against them by calling ICE or by contacting some other form of immigration official. We had a case in our office where there was a worker who had experienced wage theft. The employer's lawyer contacted ICE and said, here's some information about this worker. Here's when his deposition is going to be in case you want to pick him up. We don't think he's documented. And we had a case about that where we were able to pursue a retaliation claim against that lawyer under the Fair Labor Standards Act, saying that that was an unlawful form of retaliation. And so this type of immigration-related threats, immigration-related retaliation may be an unlawful form of retaliation. And so I want workers to know that, that they are not without recourse and they should definitely contact us because we can talk to them and advise them about workplace threats of retaliation based on immigration status. Can you talk about the different agencies that are involved in overseeing sexual harassment in the workplace and and what the roles are? There's a number of different agencies. Um, To start with the federal agency, It's called the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They have a number of offices around the country, and they now have an online charge filing system. And so a worker can begin the complaint process online. They can also go in person to the EEOC's offices. There's three in the Bay Area. Unfortunately, they're all very much in the immediate Bay Area. They're in San Francisco. Oakland and San Jose, but their information is online at eeoc.gov. They enforce our federal rights to be free from sexual harassment, sexual assault, those types of conduct. And you have to file with them within 300 days of the unlawful conduct. That's because here in California, we have a state agency as well that engages in work sharing with the EEOC. That's why we have 300 days to go to the EEOC. In other states, it might be a shorter amount of time, as short as 180 days. There's also a state agency called the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. They enforce our state sexual harassment laws. And Our state laws are quite a lot more protective than federal law. We've talked a little bit about the different standards, but another way in which they're more protective is that at the federal level, you're prohibited from sexually harassing your workers if you have 15 or more of them. But at the state level, if you even have one worker, you can't sexually harass them. So our law is more protective. Our state agency is available for receiving complaints of sexual harassment as well. They also have a website, dfeh.ca.gov. 
They have an online complaint filing system, and they also have a phone number on their website that you can call if you need more information. With respect to state law, you have more time. You can file with the state agency within one year of the unlawful conduct. There are some laws that I think we're going to be talking about a little bit later involving domestic violence and workplace rights. Those laws are generally enforced by the labor commissioner the DLSC, the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, and their retaliation unit. And in general, in general, at least for these particular types of unlawful conduct involving domestic violence and sexual assault and stalking with respect to rights under the labor code, in general, you have to file with the labor commissioner's retaliation unit within one year of the unlawful conduct. That's all the time we have for today's episode. Please join us on our next episode for part two of the discussion. Thanks for listening.